are here for the second in a series of podcasts. This one is called The Healing Journey, Avoiding the Pitfalls. And I have Linda Barnes here with me today. Hi, Linda. Thanks again for your interest in helping to raise awareness on this subject and in helping victims uh, today on the recovery and healing journey. Cheers, Linda. So this episode that we're going to cover today is about the journey from the first realisation of being in a covert, passive, aggressive, narcissistic abuse situation. And it's going to cover, Linda, isn't it, um, through to the recovery, some of the issues, the pitfalls and the blockages that inhibit people as they're trying to work their way through all of this. As admin of the group with thousands of members, you seem ideally placed, Linda, to be able to offer some guidance about the way forward with all of this. Well, yeah, we certainly see quite a range of experiences that people have from um, some moving quite progressively through the whole process to many others who seem to become stuck um, along the way and just unable to move forward. We always really have to recognise, though, that while this is such a similar and a shared experience for lots of people in so many ways, it's also a unique um, situation for each individual. And that's really because of their own dynamics of the relationship and their own particular circumstances. So, Linda, what are some of the issues that you've found that seem to present the biggest obstacles for people? Unfortunately, there are lots of issues, given that one of our biggest problems here is a general lack of awareness and understanding of this subject. So we find that as well as making what what really is a truly awful discovery about our own relationship, And that covers all relationships, you know, so it can be an intimate one. It might be with a mother or a father or siblings, people at work, friends, etc. All relationships, really. But we find that no one seems to understand it. And that also extends to the healing and legal professions as well as other friends and family, etc. So we're left feeling completely misunderstood and sometimes even worse than that, completely isolated and effectively silenced by the fact that nobody really understands any of this. And, you know, having our voice taken away as a result of it all is really incredibly damaging for anyone who's trying desperately hard to find ways to heal themselves. It sometimes gets compounded as well by people trying to help, and then they end up giving what might well be well-intentioned advice. But it happens to be totally inappropriate sometimes, given what it is that we're faced with. It really does feel like a a lonely, alien and frightening place to be. Many people in our group, uh, many, many, um, unhesitatingly describe this as the darkest time of their lives to date. Because it's often after years of abuse that this comes to light. And by this point, we're just left stripped of confidence. And very often we're totally confused about even who we are ourselves. And then we're faced with having to recognise a truth that that we too would much rather prefer to deny um, than accept. And it's our own denial and these feelings of total isolation and loneliness that really inhibits progress for a while too. It sounds absolutely awful, uh, Linda, but I suppose that's where the support group that that you run um, really comes into its own because at least there, I suppose, some people find um, a shared sense of understanding um, it's somewhere to, to look for advice and guidance and, and to avoid, I suppose, these pitfalls that, you, that you're highlighting. Well, yes, we very much hope that's the case. Um, but of course, we're not the only support group out there. Um, there's actually a wide variety of groups. 
and not all of them fit what people are actually looking for. So uh, I think I'd suggest here that people are very selective when choosing the best support group for them to make sure that they're choosing the one will be a, uh, that's going to be appropriate to support their healing journey rather than having somewhere where perhaps it's more of a just a place to vent with other people. There are lots of groups like that because not every support group is entirely geared to healing, but they do all have a place depending on what it is that each individual might be looking for. So Linda, it sounds a bit problematic uh, from the outset really, because people wouldn't necessarily know which to choose initially, I suppose, would they? No, no, not until they join some of these groups and then they see what kind of environment um, that's there. And it's also difficult and the same kind of situation with all of the resources that are available online, many of which profess to offer information on this subject. In the same way, some of these are really reliable resources, whereas others are less so. But what we really don't want here um, is to add to our confusion um, by using the wrong resources rather than bringing some consistency and clarity to us. The fact, too, that's really so often overlooked is there's a very real element of shock involved once we first make the discovery about narcissism itself. And then when we further go on to realise that um, covert passive aggressive narcissism exists, too. It really knocks us for six and we're left reeling about the whole thing. So in reality, this isn't a great time to be expecting people to make good, informed decisions about how, how best to go about this. I, I can see that just from uh, looking at the page, Linda. It sounds so full of pitfalls. Um, so is there general advice or guidance that you can give that might help people plot a path through all of this? Well, what we say at the outset is really um, is to just try and put the brakes on a little bit, to step back and just try and show ourselves some of the same grace and compassion that we do tend to be so good at showing to other people. And acknowledge that to be in this situation is truly an overwhelming and life-changing experience for anyone. So I think the priority, I'd say, is to pace yourself. Because people at this stage are already emotionally and psychologically overloaded as a result of the abuse that they've faced. Now that alone is an enormously difficult thing to come to terms with and to deal with. And on top of that, which is more than bad enough, um, people are now learning about a subject that in itself seems so full of contradictions and confusing complexities, but which, sadly, is starting to make sense of what has up to that point been a situation that's never previously made any kind of sense at all. Now, we find that uh, there are multiple YouTube channels and websites and reading material, um, all kinds of stuff out there, really, that we're tempted to obsessively gorge on at the beginning. And having been there, I absolutely acknowledge uh, what feels like a desperate need to find out as much as we can after what's often years of just mayhem and confusion. But we'd be well advised to go slowly with this because all of this newfound information needs to be digested and processed or we'll just sink under the weight of it all rather than, rather than it being helpful, which is what we really do need. Yeah, I think you've said before, haven't you, Linda, that some of the support groups and the online material is less helpful than others. Is there any way uh, that some of the less helpful ones uh, could be avoided? Well, it's a personal choice, again, for lots of people. Uh, and I'm certainly not here to, to name any particular groups or channels. But I think there are some pointers that are worth considering when we're choosing resources to focus on. And also the type of support group that might be suitable for you uh, specifically. 
Obviously, it matters just what your own priorities are too. But assuming that the ultimate goal is healing and moving forward, then yes, for sure, there are some things uh, here that might be useful. There are a number of important points, I think, useful to make a mental note of. Because although they might sound simple, they do get lost in the melee and and confusion of it all. And our situation, unfortunately, leaves us outside of the mainstream advice about these things, especially when it comes to relationship breakdowns and having to make some really difficult decisions about distancing ourselves from abusive parents and, and family members, for example. The first thing I'd probably say is to validate the need of our learning about the situation we've been in. Because for us, our healing in so many cases really does depend on it. The fact is that we can't heal from our wounds properly if we have no understanding of what's caused them in the first place. Finding the abuse that we have suffered is an actual thing in its own right is key to that. We need that name and the understanding in order to bring some clarity to our confusion and to determine our own role in the dynamic that's involved. It's needed so that we can begin to disentangle ourselves from the enmeshment that frequently occurs in these relationships too and to start to see where one person ends and another person begins in them. It's needed so that we can be more clear about personal responsibilities and accountability, etc. It's so important for so many different reasons. Another thing to be really mindful of is the radical acceptance that we hear spoken of so much. Because if we haven't done the work to establish the nature of our abuse already, we can't even begin to accept it. And that acceptance is also fundamental to being able to move forward. So Linda, there might be terms here that are being referenced, and I must say they're new to me. So this radical acceptance, is that actually acknowledging that it is abuse? And and presumably that's really difficult for people to actually do, is it? To to actually accept that that has happened to them? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's sort of known as radical because really we're fighting our own desires and wish to, to have this not be the case. So we're real, you know, we really do feel like we're going out there to, to make that leap, to fully accept that this is our situation going forward. And it is essential to our recovery to acknowledge it, most definitely. And it often takes longer to do this than lots of people might think. You know, it's so wrong that people unfamiliar with this tend to think that we all just rush to call ourselves victims and to call everything we've experienced abuse. The fact of it is that we're so in denial about all of this initially that we really do struggle to call ourselves victims. It's just not how we see ourselves or how we would ever want to see ourselves and actually not how we want the world to see us either. So this can be really tricky. The same applies to the words abuse and abuser. And from my own experience, I know that it took me the longest time to be able to sit comfortably with this and to finally own those words as they applied to me and my situation. But our healing does depend on our understanding of these things and our acceptance of them. Failing to do so does nothing but serve to increase the denial and to hold us back. It also hinders our understanding and appreciation of the advice that we hear about how to deal with these scenarios and about our own self-care. Because we then struggle to see how they really do apply to us individually. It's really truly accepting these words and owning our truth um, that are misunderstood and very often taken as signs of weakness by people who don't really understand this. Whereas it's quite the opposite. They're actually signs of courage and strength. 
and we'll spend much of our time going round in ever-decreasing circles until we reach this level of acceptance. This is where therapy and the shared experience and supportive groups specialising in this subject can really come into their own. Our levels of acceptance directly influence our level of healing. It does take time and effort though, and just how much is different for everyone. It often takes years to reach the point that we have, and it can't all be undone in a matter of weeks. So patience here is another key factor. Although I'd like to say otherwise, there really isn't a quick fix for this. What isn't healthy, though, is to then hold on to blaming our abuser for too long, because if we entirely focus on anger and blame them, we're continuing to focus on them rather than redirecting our energy and attention to ourselves. They've had far too much of us already. It's our time now. So, Linda, that's about a big message there I'm hearing from you about self-care, really, and, and sort of focusing on yourself um, what you've gone through rather than blaming the individual the, the sort of perpetrator of the abuse so in the last podcast we talked about that that word that balance that's needed is that really what you're saying again that it's it's that getting that balance right so that you know you don't destroy yourself in a way is that what you're what you're saying completely so yes yeah well remembered um it's all about balance really linda now, don't get me wrong, you know, there's, a, there's space here and an appropriate space in which to apportion blame uh, where necessary. The key to it, though, is not hanging on to that for too long. So I'd really you know, like to urge people to be mindful from the outset that learning about this is only one part of the healing journey. It's an easy thing to say, and like lots of things in life, it's a very difficult thing to do. But trying to reach a point where you're satisfied that you've been involved in an abusive relationship without getting too hung up on trying to diagnose it is really quite important. This is something that catches people out and can hold them back significantly from their own healing journey. Now, this is a really big and controversial subject in its own right, and uh, it really does merit separate discussion. But as far as pick pitfalls goes this is probably the biggest single one for lots of people we often find that far too much emphasis is put on this and it's so understandable and it's probably because of our own toxic hope around rescuing a loved one etc but i very 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 much would urge caution about this type of thinking and effectively handing over the keys to our future happiness to the dsm and of any kind of reliable diagnosis of any of the cluster B disorders. And just for people that might not know, what's the DSM, uh, Linda? Uh, that is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of um, Mental Health Illnesses. Um, and this is what's used right. by uh, clinicians and professionals when they're trying to reach diagnoses of individuals. Yeah, perhaps we could cover that in a, in a future podcast. So you, you mentioned... Um, that very much about the caution about that thinking why why do you think that is linda why do you think people do that um well i'll call it the dsm uh, purely because it's quite a mouthful but um the dsm you know it really does work hard to provide clinicians with um, a framework of uh, what they call symptom criteria to work with and they try to apply those when uh, they're looking to try and reach a diagnosis related to mental health but many clinicians struggle with their interpretation. And there's 
an awful lot of discussion about the high levels of comorbidity across these disorders, uh, which means that there's concern that they often blur the issues rather than clarify them. Now, when I say comorbidity, I mean um, there are different sets of symptom criteria for different personality disorders, and some of them are very similar. So there are issues at times of trying to decide which symptom criteria fit into which diagnoses, and it, it does cause an awful lot of confusion and blurring of the lines. And sometimes that means we might have the same person who presents to two different con- uh, clinicians in very much the same way, but then they walk away with a completely different diagnosis. Uh, and that's sometimes purely based on the clinician's own experience in the field and their personal interpretation of the symptom criteria. So it's not at all as straightforward as some people might think. And if we combine that with the fact that narcissists are probably the least likely to ever seek a diagnosis, and their openness and honesty during these consultations obviously comes into question too. At the end of the day, people who avoid responsibility and accountability for their actions, as narcissists do, and who don't believe there's anything wrong with them, um, you know, they're not particularly inclined to genuinely seek any kind of diagnosis or help. So there are very real difficulties with this all the way down it, it the line. It sounds really, really complicated. And like you say, the, the, they are probably the last people to actually admit anything or uh, and to get, like you say, that diagnosis. So what can people do, Linda? Well, you know, I don't want to be disrespectful to the DSM because I do recognise um, that it does the best it currently can. But this just illustrates how terribly difficult and complicated these issues really are. And it's also worth remembering, too, that covert passive-aggressive narcissistic abuse is a relatively recent discovery. And because of that, and some of the issues I've already mentioned here, there's comparatively quite little research available to assist us um, in this area, too. So perhaps just reaching the point of our being satisfied that this is something that we have experienced might just be the very best that we can do with this right now. To expect a wholly reliable diagnosis from things as they currently stand is much more hopeful than it is realistic, I'm afraid, and not something upon which to solely base decision-making and future planning on. And this is where people do try to do just that and then can find themselves staying stuck at this point for a very long time indeed. So, Linda, are people trying to just put themselves back into the best position they can in terms of their own understanding of all this? Totally so. Totally so. And it is all very understandable because, as I said at the beginning, there's a distinct lack of um, professional support for victims when it comes to this. And the learning and understanding of it is all quite new and subject to change. Uh, People are still learning. The professionals are still learning as we go along with this. But, you know, many people would say that the victims of uh, CPAN abuse, I'm just going to shorten it there for ease, Many people would say that the victims of CPAN abuse are the best place to understand it because it's a lived experience for us, not something out of a textbook or a manual. The thing is, though, that chaos and confusion lie at the heart of manipulative tactics used against us. So we often have symptoms related to that as we're trying to work all these things out. To try to help with this a little, if we're looking at YouTube channels, etc., I would always suggest choosing those that remain focused and that try to incorporate what little clinical and professional research there is on this subject into the information they provide. 
at least that way, you know that there's some basis for the information and that it's not just an individual's own opinion on the whole topic. I'd also avoid those channels that sensationalise narcissism. You know, we see titles and pictures used on some of this material uh, that I know are meant to attract us uh, to them as opposed to other ones. Um, but, you know, I'd much prefer the ones that pre present a calm and professional image. Because where we see dramatisation and sensationalism and what's obviously intentionally disturbing images of devils and demons and people screaming and shouting at each other, etc., I'd really question if that's the kind of place that's going to provide solid information geared toward understanding and healing. From my experience, I'd say that victims have already been through more than enough drama and chaos around this whole subject without exposing themselves to even more at this stage. There's also the very real possibility that some of the information presented in such a way could easily trigger and re-traumatise people who are already extremely vulnerable. We really don't need a shock factor here. We've had that already in real life. We just need sound, reliable content. And this is why I'd also avoid support groups where there's more venting than support, and particularly where they're not well monitored, but are rather left to the members to post whatever it is they like. So people, Linda, wouldn't necessarily know which to choose at the outset, would they? No, that's very true. Um, but it is also super important to try to remove those horrible feelings of isolation that we feel at these times too. So I'm certainly not saying to ignore support groups, not at all. Um, and I, I do acknowledge that we're all different as people too, and some groups will feel like a better fit for some people than others depending on what it is that they're looking for. But just bear in mind that while there's a time and a place for anger and venting, it only has a limited shelf life in terms of helpfulness. So if you've found yourself in a really shouty type of place, it could serve to keep you stuck in that angry place rather than moving forward through your emotions. You know, even in the more supportive groups, um, ours for example, I often suggest that people step back from them whenever they feel the need. The fact is that while we find people who understand our situation there, there's also the whole healing journey represented there too. And we have people obviously at all various stages of it. Now, some of the stories and predicaments are truly shocking. They're difficult and they're really upsetting. And it can hit hard seeing story after story of this kind of thing. So again, bring in that word balance. If you're finding it all too much, this isn't you, this is just an overload of information. So what I suggest to people is to just post the question that they might need help with at that point and then step back. They'll always receive notifications when they have answers to their own post, so just check back in with those rather than reading everything else on there. Step back completely for a while if you need to as well. And that's really good uh, advice, uh, Linda, because it's, it's interesting that, isn't it? Because there's a whole range of emotions that are experienced here, aren't there? Oh, there really are. I mean, in fact, I'd say we experience probably the whole range of human emotions during this kind of experience. It's not a linear journey either, and uh, we often find ourselves revisiting some of the emotions that we thought we'd worked through previously, and this can happen more than once. So expect peaks and troughs in this. It's perfectly normal. If we're to heal, though, we need to express all of those emotions in a safe and supportive environment. So this is another consideration to bear in mind. Also, especially in the early stages, it's a real roller coaster of emotions. 
including going through a whole grieving process for many people. And that's often accompanied by a deep anger, as well as sadness, disbelief, panic, fear, worthlessness, uh, and a very strong feeling of injustice. It, it feels like a seemingly endless list at times, which in itself can really feel tremendously overwhelming. It's extremely important, though, that we allow these feelings to surface and that we acknowledge them and we give them time and space. They're all important and they need to be honoured and respected. Because if we try to ignore them or stuff them back down deep inside of us, we'll just slow, it'll all just slow down and inhibit our recovery ultimately. While it may feel preferable at the time, we'll certainly pay the price later. So what you've described there, Linda, is it a common thing that happens that people bury, bury the feelings really, do they? It's very common because these are very unpleasant feelings, deeply unpleasant feelings and disturbing feelings that lots of people perhaps have never experienced to this extent before. So burying them seems almost like a natural thing to do. And, you know, it's also natural, perhaps too, and easier, to hold on to anger and to blame the abuser than to allow ourselves to experience that depth and magnitude of our own feelings. And this is also where some of the resource sites and support groups benefit, because they attract huge numbers of members and subscribers who want to just vent and be angry. But genuine recovery isn't about hanging on to anger, blame or bitterness. It's about working our way through all of those emotions and then coming out the other side, not staying stuck in negative emotions and negative energy. You mentioned uh, their uh, blame as well, and I suppose that's very common, but isn't it healthy to actually recognise the abuse? It is, it is. It's a real starting point. Um, like we've already said, recognition and acceptance of all of the roles in this dynamic are super important. Because we need to understand those aspects and separate them out. But all of these things have a shelf life and we just need to be careful that we don't let them take us over. And it's, it's very much an issue uh, that I've noticed in, in your group too, Linda, that people really struggle, don't they, to let go of their abusers. And there's almost like this obsessive focus with a view to almost rescuing them uh, or even changing them. Why do you think that is? And uh, when people have suffered so badly in these abuse situations, you know, why do why do people even think about rescuing or consider changing the people that are perpetrating the abuse? Yeah, that's absolutely true. And it's definitely an area that causes people to become stuck. And some people sadly become completely stuck in some cases. But that's just how it is, particularly very early on after discovering the truth of the situation. There are lots of reasons for this, and but there's just one I'm going to mention here, um, I think, and that's cognitive dissonance. Um, and we experience this when we first come to this realisation. You know, we just struggle with the sheer incredulity we experience as we learn more and more about covert passive-aggressive narcissistic abuse. And as more and more of the pieces of our own puzzle start to come together. The picture it completes is totally at odds with the idea of the life that we thought we had. And those two opposing realities cause so much inner conflict and disorientation. In short, our brain struggles to reconcile these two totally conflicting concepts. So this presents significant difficulties for us, especially when naturally, you know, we'd naturally prefer to believe our original Champagne and Roses version of events rather than this much darker option. Denial here is really very problematic. 
It sounds like such a difficult place, Linda, from, um, you know, if, if you're trying to make sense of everything, it sounds a really difficult place. That It is. And this is yet another reason we need to understand what's happened to us. Because if we don't do that, the cognitive dissonance will just continue and continue. And having experienced it again, you know, it's really torturous to have the same questions going endlessly round and round in our minds with there being no apparent answer. Learning about this will help. And the radical acceptance uh, across the board also helps us to work out what's happened and to finally begin to make sense of it all so that some of this inner conflict can ease. It takes time for people to overcome this. And, you know, some people can do this much more quickly than others. But as with everything else, there's no rushing it. It's different for everyone. So, Linda, I'm just going to take you back, if I can, just to this uh, point about um, this fixation, really, on diagnosing the abuser um, and trying to change them or rescuing them. Um, what you just described there, sorry to go back on uh, and highlight this again, but is that why people do get fixated on diagnosing the, uh, the abuser? Oh, I think it certainly plays a part in it. I don't think there's any doubt about that, really. You know, the in incredulity alone can have this effect, particularly when it comes to feeling almost the need to diagnose them. This is where people can get stuck with obsessive research. Um, and it reminds me, actually, of a, a meme that there is about this that perhaps shows just how common this is because there's a meme out there that's very popular. And it goes something like... Um, I wanted a relationship, but all I ended up with is a PhD in personality disorders. And by the time some of us are finished with this, it really does feel very much like that. But this comes about, though, because as people, you know, we do tend to be rescuers, too. We're life's carers and fixers, so it can go way beyond just putting a name to it for us. We have really strong motivation to help others and obviously those we love. So this is a natural thing for us to do. And it's a powerful part of who we intrinsically are. So it's really problematic. This side of things is probably the biggest blocker in terms of making a decision to remove ourselves from the abuse and in our own healing, because we do fixate on them and on finding a solution, a cure, if you like. And this is where our own personality very much gets in the way of our own recovery. I can see that, Linda, and seeking the diagnosis ties into a need, I suppose, to rescue and fix, which you've mentioned earlier, um, and trying to fix the whole situation. And I suppose people are making it all about them in that scenario. Oh, yeah. You know, and it's one of those little laughable ones, really, because that's the extent it goes to. Um, but this is where balance comes into this again. If we aren't very careful here, we lose ourselves again entirely. And this becomes nothing to do with our healing and recovery and everything to do with theirs. And no one is doing this to us other than ourselves. We're completely culpable with this. We're doing this to ourselves. Because narcissists don't see that they have a problem at all. We're the ones that want to cure them. You know, in this respect, we effectively become our own worst enemies in this. And this is so fraught with danger for us and in so many different ways, especially bearing in mind that we've already mentioned uh, cognitive dissonance and denial, etc., we need to do our level best to consciously remind ourselves that we count too and that we're the ones who've suffered from significant psychological abuse here. And all of this has ramifications that factor into it. In fact, it's all of these things that we need to bring to the fore to be healed. And yet they seem to conspire against us in continuing to facilitate our directing all of our attention onto them. So what can we do about all this, Linda? I think it'd be helpful to recognise that 
all of the things that we feel the need to do during this stage, they're all really valid. But if we aren't going to lose sight of ourselves in all of this, there really does need to be limits placed as to how far each aspect goes before we get to the point where we feel comfortable to reach certain conclusions. And then to apply our newfound learning and understanding back to ourselves. You know, healing and recovery is a process and it's a journey. And all of these things play a part in it. And if we try to skip any particular part of it and jump too far ahead, we'll just end up stumbling and falling back somewhere farther down the line. But what we really must do, which is totally alien to us, so again, it's incredibly difficult, but we really must make sure that we keep ourselves in full focus in all of this. This is where we trip up most often. As people, we just don't focus on ourselves very much at all. But learning about narcissism and CPAN abuse is fundamentally important, as we've already said, in giving what we've experienced a name. And it gives us some reassurance as well that it is an actual thing in its own right. Our need to research this and find out as much as possible is perfectly natural. But there's only so far we can go with this. We almost have a physical need to know that we're not crazy by this point, such as the extent of the uncertainty caused by the gaslighting and the projection and triangulation tactics amongst others that have been used against us. But there really does need to be a switch here where we take all of our learning about this subject so far and then apply it to ourselves. There's often a tendency to think that all we need to heal from ourselves at this point is just the abuse. But again, that's only part of it. Our real healing begins when we get to this point and then start to ask ourselves some questions too. And that, no, these are questions like, what is it about me that's allowed me to stay in this situation for so long? Why am I so willing to always believe that I'm wrong and someone else is always right? Or what is it about me that makes me feel that I'm undeserving of the same love, respect and compassion that I so freely give to everyone else? Why? These are key questions in understanding our own role in all of this. And we each do have a role in it. These are the things that really need our attention. What I'd like that saying to be, and what it really should be, if we were to be balanced in our approach, is, I wanted a relationship, but I ended up with a PhD in self-care. And, and I suppose the first podcast that you did, Belinda, was titled, Is It Me? And I noticed there there was quite a lot of references is 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 it is that linked is it to the first podcast question as well it's all linked linda because you know we just tend to go around in ever decreasing circles with this um and the abuse leads us to that question all the time is it me it's that underlying yeah. doubt that is always there and that point you said about have you gone crazy um is it me etc yeah no it's it's a very 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 strong point that you're making there linda so is there anything more that you can say that might help people with some of the information that's out there linda because it's it does sound like a a massive information and if you're you know you're in crisis yourself you know trying to sort of find your way through all of that is there anything that you could uh, say to help people what to do well i'd i'd be Really guarding against relying on any information at all provided by any resource. Now, this here, this would also apply to some things that you might hear in some of the support groups. But anything that states that anything about narcissism or narcissistic behaviour that kind of infers it's quoting it as being an irrefutable fact. 
So the type of thing I'm talking about is something that might say, uh, begin with all narcissists, all narcissists do this or don't do that, etc. Now, that's a real red flag about that source's level of understanding, about the knowledge and their insight and their own level of research into this area. And it can really throw people who are genuinely seeking you know, to be reliably informed about this subject. And this can lead into another stumbling block here too, in that lots of people approach this with almost a checklist of behaviours or traits to look for. And they feel unable to move forward unless they, they check off every single one on that list. And again, this stems from our own lack of knowledge and various misunderstandings at this stage. But it can become a very real blocker to our progress. You know, it's mind-blowing enough for people to come to terms with the fact that there are two types of narcissism, and that's that's a starting point for most people. It's a real discovery to find out that there's overt narcissism and covert narcissism. Uh, and they begin with the traits and behaviours recognised with, with these two, uh, and those are the ones that tend to appear on these checklists. But in the early stages, what many people aren't aware of is that there are many other subcategories out there too. And this can significantly impact how those behaviours manifest. Couple this with a comorbidity that we've talked about across various other personality disorders. And it makes a checklist and the all narcissists do X, Y and Z approach totally unreliable. Because let's face it, you know, you can't check off behaviours that you don't even know exist yet. So the checklist itself is flawed from the outset. And we've already briefly discussed some of the difficulties around the DSM. So what other types of narcissists are there then? Um, yeah, well, I mean, there are as many types of narcissists as there are types of people. And, and people tend to not really pick up on this, but, you know, this is a human condition. So it crosses all types of people and it knows no boundaries. So there are countless that you'll hear of as you go along. Just a couple to mention here would be the neglectful narcissist and the spiritual or the communal narcissist, for example. But the list is substantial. Wow, it's, uh, it's it, it really is uh, a minefield, isn't it, uh, Linda? And uh, it's, it's that difficulty of knowing where to draw the line for people too, isn't it? Uh, when they're looking at the possibility of um, possibly making life-changing decisions for themselves. And sometimes the children, so you might have children involved too. So you've got all these different types, haven't you, of, of narcissists. And, um, you know, if people must, it must be incredibly difficult, you know, to get advice, get support um, with so many definitions and different types of, of what are personality disorders, um, etc. Yes, that's absolutely the case, you know, and that's another key reason to avoid these checklist type of approach. Because it is so complex, you know, you, you start, you're starting off on the wrong foot, um, unwittingly. But that's not anybody's fault. You know, people are just trying to do the best that they can here with very limited help from anyone, including from the prof profession. So what can you do? You can only do your best. And it's more than understandable because people are also trying to establish if there might be something that can improve the situation or it might be something that's treatable too. But this does all fall down because we're not clinicians and we quite simply cannot reliably diagnose anyone and nor would it be right to. It's simply far too complex an area to play doctor with. And if we go too far down the line in trying to rescue or fix or change this person, 
we're effectively trying to do the impossible. And actually, you know, something that we're not really entitled to do at all to any other human being. Only they can work to change themselves should they want to and should they choose to, which tend to be missing ingredients with narcissists, given that this is all based on their own perspective and worldview. It will be for them and only them to express the desire and the will and the intention to do so. And it would absolutely be for them alone to act on it, not us. They don't see that there's anything to change, though. And if that's the view, they're rightly entitled to it, whether we like it or agree with it or not. So this brings us back to the issue of letting go, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And letting go doesn't just mean leaving a relationship. It also means letting go of things that, in truth, they're just not our issues and they're not our responsibility. Issues that are actually nothing to do with us. Issues that are their responsibility to address. We can only affect the change of ourselves. We can't ever affect change on another person. And sometimes this is also demonstrative of our own issues that require attention. Because, you know, very often we'd much rather focus all of our attention on everyone else, really, rather than look at our own imbalances. Because when we're busily helping everyone else, we're also ignoring our own issues. If we are to truly heal, that needs to stop. Because we do play a role in this dynamic too. And there are aspects where we have perhaps unwittingly facilitated our own abuse because of them. Now, I know that this can be a really difficult thing to acknowledge and to face, but it doesn't make it any the less true. After experiencing this type of abuse, we absolutely owe it to ourselves to see that we need to take a serious look at our own behaviour too, so that we can make any necessary changes to prevent the same kind of thing repeating in our current and future relationships. There's more than one person who needs to look at themselves here. And while CPANs don't want to do that, and it's often said to be that they're largely incapable of doing it, we can. And if we want to heal and recover beyond a superficial level, we must. If we don't, we'll very likely find ourselves repeating this abuse cycle over and over until we do learn to finally apply these lessons to ourselves. So this is why people need to move on through each stage, is it? Because the ultimate aim needs to be for people to actually own their own healing, Linda. We have to own it. That's the only healing we can own. We can't, like I've just said, we can't own anyone else's. But yes, we need to move through the stages and, and accept it's limited. So if we can reach the point where we just satisfy ourselves enough that we have been abused... And to acknowledge that, regardless of the reason or, you know, the, the discovery or whatever spin uh, we might put on it or that others might put on it. But for us to realise that abuse is never, ever acceptable. And that's what we need to use as a basis for making decisions going forward. It's hard. It's very hard because rescuing other people is so very ingrained in us. But now in these circumstances... We are the ones who need to be rescued. We don't call this the hero's journey for nothing, but we can do it. So how do people do this, Linda? We need to decisively and intentionally refocus our attention to ourselves and seek to use all of our learning up to, up to this point by applying it to ourselves so that we can direct our efforts to establishing areas that need our input. In short, 
give ourselves the same levels of time, interest, compassion and attention that we've given to understanding our abusers. We have the advantage here that we are able to self-reflect, we can learn and we can apply the lessons learned. Because, you know, we can't do better for ourselves until we know better. The learning this has brought to us means that we do now have a better understanding of these things. So we can do better. The real benefits of all of this learning is lost, though, if we don't use it to see how it all applies to us too. And that's entirely up to us. And it's up to us to have commitment to ourselves going forward. And I do appreciate how difficult this is. And I do know that many people struggle with, with this aspect of it. And if we do, and perhaps if there are children involved, for example, we can try to reframe this by acknowledging that you can't give of your best for an, en an empty cup. So not only are children in this situation absorbing the abuse that they're witnessing, just like the proverbial sponges that they are, but they're also not experiencing the best of you either. So try to think of these efforts you're making to heal yourself as being for their benefit. It's true in as much as if you move toward healing, they'll see and feel the benefits of it too. In truth, it's as much for them as it is for you, if you can give to them from an abundant place rather than a depleted one. You'll also be showing them healthy behaviour. You owe it to them to be the best you you can be too. We deserve so much better than we've experienced so far. But, you know, we can't complain about things we're not willing to change. And we may have inadvertently set our own standards in much of this. Not least that if we continually put everyone else first in our lives and ignore our own needs and self-care, what we're actually doing is effectively teaching everyone else that that's not only acceptable to us, but it's expected. And if anyone knows, well, no one knows better than we do, that there are those people out there who will be only too happy to follow our lead in that regard. We need to seek to understand why we often do this so much to our own detriment. If we truly want to heal and have a much healthier and happier life going forward, we need to lead by our own example and focus on ourselves in order to achieve that. That's where the bulk of our work lies. Work to change the only person you can, yourself. You'll be so happy in the long run that you did. I hope you've all enjoyed uh, what is the second of our podcast, The Healing Journey, Avoiding the Pitfalls. And thank you very much to Linda Barnes. A very, I hope you all feel very enlightened on the subject and uh, look forward to speaking again soon.